Life is work. The question is, what are we making with all those efforts, and whom do we serve? I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is the Jewish Heroism Project. Lesson two: The first path, Avodah. Life is work, and that's why Avodah, doing the work is the very first path which lies beyond the gate of Tov, that gate of good which leads out onto the 26 paths of Jewish heroism. And once you know that our quest is for the essential goodness of creation, really, the question becomes, how do we make it manifest? And the paths of heroism are there to trace the heroic face of Torah, to encourage you, to call you, to engage them in a way which is so profound it will bring out your own heroic face, making you the hero, the person who can do good on your own life journey. And so long as you're ready to be a hero, ready to be Moser Nefesh Laman Tov, to go beyond, to grow beyond your limited sense of self in service of that good, then there are endless ways to do so. So many tools fit to the facets of creation. But one thing unites them. They all require work. The question is, of what kind? So in modern Hebrew, if I say, I'm saying I'm going to work. And the truth is the Torah doesn't deny that essential meaning. The first appearance of work is bound up with avodat ha'adama, working the ground, a various serious type of labor. But we're also going to see avodat shebelev when we go into the Torah, a service of the heart that our sages say is prayer. And then, of course, the work of the kohanim the priests in the temple is also called Avodah, and their task is to connect heaven and earth through the altar. So clearly, there's more to this word Avodah than simply hard labor. But I don't want to kid anybody. It starts there. The path of Avodah, that first one which lies beyond the gate of good, is a lot of work. And work will be a necessary ingredient along every step of the 26 paths of heroism which follow. But like I said, what kind of work? So let's go back to our home base principle. That notion that learners of Torah will tell you that the first appearance of a word in the text of the Torah, while it's not comprehensive, is often definitive in how we understand the idea. And the first time Abu Da appears in the Torah, it's in Breshit, in Genesis chapter 2, line 5, where it says, It was before any shrub of the field had yet grown, and any grass of the field had yet sprouted. Why not? Because the Lord God hadn't caused it to rain. And furthermore, Adam ein lavod et ha'adama. There was no human to work the land. Now here, this first appearance, in its simple sense, is putting out the effort to bring forth life. But before we get too carried away, I want to point out there's nothing simple about that sentence. And if you didn't get it from a sentence alone, then take a look at it in context. Because the Torah goes on and says, the aid it's a mist arose from the ground, and watered the whole face of the earth. And the Lord God crafted the first human out of the dust of the earth, blowing into his nostrils the breath of life. And the human became a living creature. Now, if you ever wondered 
what the mythic voice of Torah sounds like, you just heard it. And since that mythic voice is going to be a primary guide in everything that lies ahead, I need to take a moment because I want to explain mythic consciousness is an essential tool of engaging heroism. And when I say mythic, I don't, God forbid, mean the opposite of fact, myth and fact, nor do I mean the type of mythology we learned in high school, systematic presentation of the gods of old. The mythic voice is there to speak truths which are simply too large to be shoehorned into pedantic factuality, truths of human experience, of divine intent, which are far too profound to be constrained by the narrow confines of things like historicity or literalism. The mythic voice, in fact, is in itself a call to a certain sort of spiritual, intellectual, misirut nefesh, a going beyond and a growing beyond what? Of your conceptions of Torah. Let go of your limits and listen to the voice behind the words. And that voice right here in the second telling of creation is the perfect place to start. It's inviting us into a mythic engagement of human experience, of existence itself. Now, you may recall that the first telling of the story of creation was the divine perspective, and it was all good, perfectly reflective of the will of its maker and almost cosmological in its neatness. Day one, day two, day three, reminiscent more than a little bit of evolution even. Now, the second telling is introducing the human experience. It's the birth of limited consciousness. It's the psycho-spiritual anthropology to that divine cosmology we saw. And by the way, that's messy and bound to be a lot of work. Now here, humanity appears first as the dust of the earth, rather than last in that previous story, standing as conquerors upon a completed planet. And everything is not yet. The verse said, Every shrub of the field was not yet upon the land. Now, this isn't because nothing was created. I mean, the second telling of our story doesn't replace the first. It's a different perspective on the same story. From the God's eye view, everything exists. It's all good, perfectly reflective of the will of its creator. Human consciousness, though, is all about the movement from potential to actual and when it says, every shrub of the field was not yet upon the land, it's important that terra means not yet rather than before. Before is a chronological marker of relationship, right? This comes before that, and that sequence may be all that unites them. But when I say not yet, we're hearing a touch of the causative. Everything is not yet, but it will be. And that begs the question of what's holding it back. It also tells us, not yet implies it's kind of already there in potential. And that's why the sages actually say all creation was waiting at the edge of the ground. Everything we saw in that first telling is already there in potential waiting for a cause. Waiting for what? Well, the verse goes on. right? The Lord God had not caused it to rain. And there was no human to work the land. It's waiting for the rain and for human abodah. Well, nothing had grown because no rain had fallen, and no rain had fallen because there was no one to do the abodah. Now, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> rain doesn't wait for us to do the work unless abodah means something far more than working the land. And 
When we come to understanding this, our best guide is Rashi, 11th century sage, you know, from the Rhineland or modern day France, mind sound to get into the details. But why does Rashi matter? Because if we're listening for the mythic voice of Torah, then there is no better guide. Rashi is in fact the main bridge, the commentator who brings to us the mythic mind of the sages from antiquity into the Middle Ages. And so what does Rashi say on that verse? He says, Ki lohim tiri. He explains, why had God not caused it to rain? Well, matam lohim tiri. He says, why hadn't God caused it to rain? The fish adam ayin. God hadn't caused it to rain because there's no human to do the avoda, to work the land. There's no one to recognize the goodness of the rains. Rashi says, when the human comes and sees, knows that there's a need, that there's a lack of rain in the world, feels that need, right? then the human will pray for the rain. They will finally come down and everything will blossom and grow. It's a fantastic thing that Rashi just told us. Why is there no rain? Because there's no one to recognize their goodness. Not just the simple gratitude a farmer might feel for the life that falls from the sky. That can't be, by the way, because, of course, it's not just that it's not raining. It has not yet ever rained. What's lacking in order for the rain to come and to move creation from potential to actual, from the edge of the ground to its full growth, what's lacking is a consciousness ready to take a heroic stance on the creation which is not yet. A stance that sees that potential good, feels its lack, and does the avoda, gets to work making it manifest. Now, there are many ways to do that type of work, that avoda, making the good of creation manifest. And in fact, the 26 paths of Jewish heroism are all about equipping you with the tools to do so. But here, Rashi actually gave us the foundational type of avoda that humanity is called to, which can move creation from potential to actual. That's prayer. We'll talk more about how that works, perhaps in one of the supplementary videos that go with this mainstream presentation. But for now, just know that our sages call prayer avodah shebelev, right, the service of the heart. And that's because heroism, however it expresses itself, demands the engagement of your heart. So there are two points I want to take from this first section. First of all, hold fast. Tune into that mythic voice. You'll never see the heroic face of Torah if you don't learn to hear the voice speaking the truths that are too big to be shrunk to human dimensions. That's its own Mesirat Nefesh. Number two, Avodah is the first active engagement of creation to which humanity is called. See the good, which is not yet. Feel the need for that all good divine perspective to be manifest in the world which we inhabit and get to work making it so. That's the path of Avodah that leads out from the gate of good. So how do we get it done? The first task to which humanity was called was to be a steward, to till and tend the divine garden. As it says in Breshit in Genesis 2.15, The Lord God took this human and placed him in the Garden of Eden, to till and to tend, to serve and to guard. The essential ovoda that we saw flows from this ability to see good, which is not yet in creation, be moved by that potential 
to act toward its manifestation. And it was meant to be put to work in the Garden of Eden. Now remember, a garden is a piece of creation, one bounded by the highest vision of the gardener, capital G in this case. Choice fruits were placed there, protected from the chaos of wild creation. And humanity has an enormous capacity to actualize, but we also have a lot of issues with choice fruits. And if you know the story of how things played out in the Garden of Eden, then you know we reached for the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We stepped by choice into the moral plane, where it was no longer a question of good being perfectly reflective of the will of its maker, but now our consciousness is bound up with the work of clarifying good, evil, right, wrong, permitted, forbidden. Now that choice was one to exercise our agency. And as a parent, I can tell you, every child exercises their agency first by saying no, even if it's to the creator, apparently. Now, I want to make clear, independent agency isn't just a desirable side aspect in a steward. It's an absolute necessity. Without agency, the steward is nothing more than a tool in the hand of the gardener. You have to have what's in Hebrew called rosh gadol. You got to have a big perspective. And when it's combined with moral consciousness, agency becomes the crown of humanity. It's the stuff of heroism, the ability to act and to discern what needs to be done. But agency without responsibility actually poses the greatest danger to creation there can be, and therefore it's the source of evil, and, and frankly, it's our fundamental sin. I have to tell you this now. Eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was not what got humanity thrown from the garden. What did was failing to take responsibility for that act of agency when we were called out. You know, the first question which humanity is asked in existence comes from God when after eating the fruit, Adam and Hava decide to hide from their action. And God calls out, Adam, Ayeka, right? Adam, Hava, where are you? Now, this is not a request for geographic location. It's not a, hey guys, where are you? It's, hey, Adam and Hava, where are you at? What have you done? Who are you now? I want you to just try and imagine for a moment what the story would have been like, what creation might be like if instead of hiding, Adam had said, you know what, God, we need to talk because this is all much bigger than I thought. But he didn't. Instead, Adam tried to hide, not just behind some bushes, but behind blaming Chava. He avoided his responsibility by claiming that she had the real agency. And that was the moment in which humanity was no longer fit to be stewards of creation. I mean, no one wants a gardener aimed with a power chainsaw and no sense of accountability for their actions wandering around in the prize orchard. The potential for destruction is simply too high. And so humanity had to go. But don't forget, Avoda was our essential relation to creation before we were put into the garden. Life is work. And it remains so after we leave the garden. We have a capacity to see the good which is not yet to feel the need for it to be manifest. The question in our story then is once we're no longer assigned the task of being stewards for the garden, what becomes the medium for our work? So leaving paradise didn't create work. Life is work and it will remain so in or outside of the garden. What changed was our focus. Where does the work of humanity now lie? 
Well, if you look in Breshit in Genesis 2, 3, 23, it says we were sent forth from the garden, to work the ground from which we were taken. Now, on a simple level, this is a reminder that we're all slaves to our stomachs. As with that famous divine pronouncement of the new human condition after the Garden of Eden, right? you will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground from which you were taken. Right? Serve your stomach in all its earthy needs until the day you die. But there's more to this story than banishment. And there's a lot more work to be done than plowing the soil to feed our bellies. Because the other verse that discusses this actual leaving of the garden actually calls it a shlichut. It's a messenger. We were sent out of the garden, not simply banished. It says, God sent the humans out of Garden Eden to work the ground from which we were taken. This tells us something very important. Our new avodah, the task to which our capacity for actualizing potential is now assigned, is working the substance from which we were taken, not just as a fatalistic recognition of physical reality everybody's got to eat, but as a new mission. And the primary field we're meant to plow after the Garden of Eden is ourselves. This recognition is a crucial step in tracing the path of Avodah as one of the 26 pathways of heroism, that the foundational work to which we're called in this world is to manifest ourselves. The Maharal of Prague dies in 1609, so we're going to call him uh, late 16th, early 17th century sage of Prague, of course, has a fantastic teaching on this notion that the work of humanity is to actualize ourselves. He asks a simple question. Why is Adam linked to Adam? Why is the human associated with the ground? I mean, we see this linkage in the name Adam, Adama. We saw it in that mythic presentation of our creation in the second telling, where God literally, like clay, needs us into existence. There's also the repetition of that evocative phrase of the ground from which we were taken. Now, he says it's to teach us an essential fact, that humanity has an infinite potential. Let me explain. It should have been, said the Maharal, that the animals would be associated with the ground. In a simple hierarchical sense, there's ground, animals, humanity. We should be something higher. But nonetheless, the animals are called a behemah. And when you take apart the Hebrew word behemah, you can end up with bet he, ba, mem he, ma. Ba, ma means in it is what it is, right? Only humanity of all the creatures, says the Maharal, was created with our greatest potential unrealized. You can give a cow 10,000 hours of instruction, but it will never learn to play Chopin. However, a human being is like the ground. If you plant a seed and you do the work, almost anything can happen. Like if you choose to engage the 26 paths of heroism, you can manifest your heroic face. So it seems clear. The first meaning of avodah, the essential stance of humanity toward creation, is an engagement of the potential good in a way in which can make it manifest. Now that stance was really intended to be a stewardship. It was a call to serve and protect, to till and tend God's vision for creation. But we didn't last long in the garden. 
So now, here we are in the world, tasked with working the ground from which we were taken. Embracing the fact that everybody's got to eat, that requires a life of labor, and enjoy <laughs> and, and rejoicing, really, in the recognition that the real labor of life is getting to work on ourselves. And in order to engage Aboda as one of the paths of heroism, it's crucial to understand that being sent out to work the ground from which we're taking is not a punishment. Nor is it simply a statement of that earthly reality that we all have to eat. It is itself the tikkun. Now, tikkun is an important word. It means a fixing, but it's not any old fixing. It's the possibility for fixing that failure itself brings about. It's a fixing that actually allows for an even greater situation to emerge than what broke can begin with. Something breaks. It's not a going back and just putting the pieces back together. The tikkun is taking the pieces and elevating them to a higher state. And in this case, when we go out and work the ground from which we're taken, use our agency to make our way in the world, to do the real basic work of drawing sustenance and building society, and the deeper heroic work of manifesting the essential good within ourselves, our agency grows as we learn to do more. And the more work we do, our sense of responsibility deepens as well. Suddenly, we have a stake in the world we've built without and within. This is the abuta, the service, the path of work on self that can become a foundation for the heroic path of abuta. Remember, heroism is misirut nefesh nama'anto, going beyond, growing beyond our internally enforced limitation, working to actualize the infinite good, like the Maral said, which is within us all. It sounds good, right? And it's true, but it's actually only the first step. A hero needs to be all they can be. But heroism is not, never just about ourselves. It's not a service of self. And hence the fact that we were meant originally to be stewards of creation in service of the divine vision. So now that we're out of the garden and working the ground from which we were taken, whom do we serve beyond ourselves? I want to tell you a story about Eliezer Eved Abraham. Right? Eliezer, the slave of Abraham, the first slave, in fact, that we meet as a personality in the Torah, even though, of course, the concept exists before he emerges. Now, I understand slavery is a scary word, and considering the history of humanity, rightly so. But nonetheless, a wise Jew once said, everybody gotta serve somebody. That is a truth of existence, and to deny it just makes you a liar a fool, or both. Power in life comes from choosing who we serve. Serving myself, serving ourselves, means that we're serving our stomachs or other less pleasant appetites. And of course, our boss, along with the whole socioeconomic structure that maintains order in our world. Now, we might be moved by politics, people, religion, each of which offers its own sort of master to be served beyond the need to eat. But Everybody has to serve somebody. And Eliezer Eved Abraham served Abraham. And remember, slaves are quintessentially nameless because really they have nothing of their own. But we know Eliezer's name. And that's because at one point in the midst of his 10 trials, Abraham cries out to God. He says, Mati ten li right, What have you given me? And I have no child. 
Uben Meshek Beitihu Damesek Eliezer. And the person who manages my household is Damesek Eliezer. Now, the story of Abraham's pain is for another time. Suffice it to say in the moment that his agony over having no inheritor wasn't just some personal need. He feared that the sacred path which he had forged might end with him, even though he had a faithful servant in Damesek Eliezer, master of his household. And there are three explanations for that name. Damesek Eliezer one, well, it's where he was from, one of the household slaves purchased by Abraham in Damascus before his journey south to Canaan. Another is actually provided by the verse I quoted. It says, Ben Meshek Beiti, who Damesek Eliezer, Meshek, Mesek, you hear it? A Meshek in Hebrew is an economic system. It's the market. Abraham is focused on the spiritual riches of his house at this point and probably right from the beginning. The household economy is in the hands of Damesek Eliezer, a steward who has made Abraham quite a wealthy man. But Eliezer is far more than a loyal and clever slave who rises to be steward of his master's great house. Our sages teach who Damesek Eliezer, he's called Damesek Eliezer, because he was able to draw forth and give out or water others with the Torah of his master. Eliezer had a unique capacity to draw from Abraham the depths of his Torah and make it accessible to the world. Not a simple thing. I mean, Abraham's greatness, as we'll discuss in its time, was in his uniqueness. But the problem of uniqueness is it's very hard to communicate. Eliezer had that capacity. And now we can begin to sense the true heroic potential in the path of Abodah. Eliezer, as an Eved, as a slave, had nothing of his own. But nonetheless, he labored night and day, going beyond, growing beyond his personal interests, his very selfhood to do more for his master. And having put his selfhood to the side, he also gained a powerful capacity to receive from his master the depths of the Torah that only Abraham was able to bring into the world. Not as a passive vessel, here, I'll put the Torah there, but as an active bridge, he was able to water a thirsty world with Abraham's unique spirit. Eliezer's ability to devote himself to a larger purpose, to a greater master, actually makes him the archetype of what we call the Eved Naaman, the faithful servant, trusted without question in material matters, as only the master of someone else's household can be, and so faithful to Abraham's spirit that he's able to translate its revolutionary message and make it accessible to the entire world without that truth losing its life-giving clarity and integrity. If we want to appreciate the power that an Evanaman wields in the world, how it can serve on the quest for the goodness of creation, well, then we need to know the story of Eliezer's heroic moment. In the aftermath of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, Abraham realized he'd almost just lost the plot. I mean, if he had killed his son without any grandkids, this would have been the end of the entire story. And so he decided it was time to find a wife for the boy. But at this point, Abraham is an ancient of days, not fit to travel. Who could he trust with such a crucial mission? Well, enter Ebed Abraham, the servant of Abraham, essence of Ne'emanut, of trustworthiness, which I promise you, 
is one of the 26 paths that we'll explore on its own. Someone who has been Moser Nefesh, who has gone beyond his limited self for the sake of his master so long that his integrity is beyond question. And of course, integrity is also one of the 26 paths. In fact, it's one of the seven that will make up the main highway of heroism. But for now, just know that it's an absolute alignment between intention and action. Eliezer could be trusted to do exactly what he said, and he would give his all, be Moser Nefesh, go beyond, grow beyond, in service of his master, larger than his own limited self. And that's why, when faced with the heroic task of carrying on the divine covenant, Abraham calls for Damascus Eliezer. Now, it's noteworthy that in this crucial moment, when Eliezer is meant to shine, the Torah actually erases his name and calls him simply Eved Abraham. And his name is gone because Eliezer's heroism lies in a posture of service so deep, so profoundly devoted that it goes beyond his human capacity, right? It gives him a power beyond that capacity. In Abraham's eyes, there's no better servant, no one more trusted to ride off with literally a king's ransom, a caravan of silver and gold into the wilderness and to stay the course, to stay with the mission in search of his family. I mean, Eliezer isn't exactly being sent to, to find a needle in a haystack, but he is on a quest for a righteous nomad in the wilderness, one with a daughter fit to be Yitzchak's wife. This is no small task. Abraham has to place his trust in Eliezer, knowing that he'll likely never see the outcome of that mission. It's the definition of Ebed Naman, of the faithful servant. So, Eliezer gets the message. He swears to his master on the sign of the covenant, mounts up the camels, and off he goes on the quest. Right Now, the sages say that his journey northward was marked by a moment of kfitzat hadera. It's a shortening of the way, a time in which reality itself folds to accommodate the hero's journey. That's an exploration that maybe we'll delve a bit deeper into when we talk about Yaakov's story. But for now, all we need to know is that it's a clear sign that Eliezer was on the right path when the path itself cooperates, specifically because it wasn't his path, as we'll see, but his master. So, seemingly moments after swearing his oath to Abraham, Eliezer finds himself there near sunset by a well outside of town. What well? What town? What land even? Not clear. But ever the practical servant, he kneels the camels down to rest, and then Eliezer begins the job for which he's come. Now, this is a mission of tall order, to find someone who is of Abraham's family, with the qualities fit to be partner in unfolding the next chapter of the divine drama, and someone courageous enough to just jump on a camel and ride off into the blue with a nameless stranger? That's a big ask. And so, he begins with the avoda an avid Naman must master. He prays. Now, Eliezer's prayer is his heroic moment. It expresses the full power of Voda as a path to heroism. First, because he's reaching that essential Avodah of the first human, of Adam, that capacity to see the good, which is not yet, and to feel its need so deeply that we're moved to pray. But Eliezer's heroism comes out in far more than just the fact that he prays. It's found in the potential good which he asks for. The verse says, He said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, manifest before me today 
with my master Abraham. Now, seemingly what he wants is a sign. As he continues on, he says that the girl who comes and I'll ask her for water and she'll give me water and then she'll offer to water my camels. And he goes through an almost exhaustive set of details that will prove that this is the one. But in reality, what Eliezer is asking for is a revelation, the type that only a truly heroic servant could ask for. He says, Hakrena lefanai hayom, right? I translated that as manifest before me, but hakre is miloshen mikre. It comes from the same word as mikre, meaning happenstance, coincidence, in the sense that the events of life are really nothing more than meaningless juxtapositions. I want you to know that a belief in coincidence is the enemy of the heroic posture of avodah. I mean, after all, if all of creation is good, perfectly reflective of the will of its maker, only that the human perspective sees it as a good which is not yet, waiting, inviting, calling us to do the avodah, the service required to actualize that potential good, well then, no moment is meaningless. It's simply a question of what work is to be done. And to say that a moment is meaningless is to lose our heroic posture. So when he says, hakrena lefanai hayom, right? It may echo mikra. It may sound like he's asking for something to just happen. But what Eliezer is really requesting is as far from a meaningless coincidence as you can get. He's asking for God to manifest. He's asking for the sum total of reality to suddenly respond to exactly what he needs in the moment. And spoiler alert, it does. Before he even gets the words out of his mouth, here's Rivka, the perfect match. And she repeats like a play action movie, exactly the words and deeds that Eliasa requested as a sign. So much so that all he can do is drop the ground, press his face to the sand and prostrate himself in awe to give thanks and praises. It's a miracle in a moment of chance. Now we're going to speak later when we come to the story of Queen Esther about the power of the eight, the heroic moment. For present purposes, Eliezer reveals it to us with a particular posture through which it becomes manifest. Because I said that Eliezer requested reality to reflect exactly what he wanted in the moment, which is certainly a heroic task. But in reality, the request wasn't for what he wanted. It was for what his master required. As he says, right? Do loving kindness with my master Abraham. In fact, our sages teach that Eliezer had a daughter of his own, which he thought would be a good match for Yitzchak. So the success of his mission is actually against his personal interests, which is only further proof that this crucial moment of the story of creation had nothing to do with Eliezer himself at all. He was purely in service of his master, a true Ebed. Now this is a Masirut Nefesh, going beyond limited self of a profound scale. And we know it was in service of Tov, of the goodness of creation. Because as Eliezer makes clear, his master is actually a servant as well. He calls Adonai Elohe Adoni Abraham. He calls Lord God of my master Abraham. I mean, he's not just Abraham's master, he's Abraham's God. Eliezer is saying, listen, I'm a servant, a slave even of Abraham, who is a servant of you, the one God. God manifests in this moment for your own sake. Abraham is your faithful servant. 
And sending me here is therefore actually your will. So, new, get to work. Manifest the deepest potential good through the circumstances of the moment in which I find myself and give a wife for Yitzchak. And God does. In this heroic moment of transcending himself in service of the divine good, of summoning God to manifest in the one Hakrena, right? Eliezer touches an even deeper layer of what it means to be an Eved. Eved Melech, Melech, that the servant of the king is a king himself. By going beyond the bounds of his limited self, Eliezer created a space within the world for the good, for the king's will, for that world which is perfectly reflected of the will of its master to manifest. He claims nothing of his own, but does everything in the name of the king. And a faithful servant who does so can actually command the world. That's a power of which the service of a true master offers. And it's a power that we would do well to learn on our quest for the goodness of creation. You know, I love the old Cecil B. DeMille movie, The Ten Commandments. I'm sure you've seen it. You know, the one where Charlton Heston plays Moses and most of us actually picture God with that big beard, right? We used to watch it, actually, my brother and I, every spring before the Passover holiday growing up. It was only later in life that I realized that the movie, with all the pride it instilled in me for being Jewish, had done some fundamental damage. In fact, had warped my understanding of the Torah in a way in which I now see in many of my peers that grew up together with me in American Judaism. And since that misunderstanding actually revolves around the idea of Avodah and therefore can contribute in a certain way to our pursuit of Avodah as a heroic path, I'm going to fix it right here and now live for you. So everybody knows Moses' big line both in the movie and elsewhere, let my people go, right? Even if you haven't seen the movie. You've heard it in gospel songs. You've seen it in civil rights slogans. You know it from the struggle for Soviet Jewry, from satyrs held on the behalf of every type of oppressed person you can imagine. Let my people go is in fact the quintessential cry for freedom. But it's also only half a sentence. Because God's message to Pharaoh, sent at the hands of his faithful servant Moshe, was actually let my people go so that they may serve me. And more often than not, in Hebrew, it's shlachetami v'yavduni, right? Send out my people that they may be my avadim, my servants. Because the story of Exodus isn't actually about an end to avdut, to slavery. It's about the choice of masters. The Hebrews begin avadim l'paro b'mitzrayim, right? As slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, taken out in order to be ovdei Hashem, servants of the creator. Remember that truth. Everybody got to serve somebody. The claim, which is popular in certain circles, that total liberation is possible is a foolish illusion and often a dangerous one, sometimes held up by liars who simply want you to be a slave to your appetites while you serve their interests, which is why the real story, the real message of the Exodus isn't about moving from slavery to freedom. It's about moving from servitude to service. Remember, avodah exists no matter what. Life is work. The question is, whom do you serve? Liberation begins with answering that question honestly. Because false consciousness is the root of all slavery and 
its most profound form in many ways. Therefore, real liberty comes through exercising our clarity and will, all our agency and responsibility in devotion to a true master. You know, the idea that slavery is rooted in false consciousness is actually how Maimonides, the Rambam, explains the exile in Egypt. You can find it on the source sheet if you want to look inside. But he says, when the Jews extended their stay in Egypt, they learned from the Egyptians' deeds and began worshiping the stars as the Egyptians did. And within a short time, the fundamental principle that Abraham had planted would have been lost, meaning knowledge of one God. Because of God's love for us, he brought forth Moses, our teacher, master of all prophets, and sent him to save us. To save us from what? Idolatry or slavery? And the answer is yes, both. Moshe came to liberate us from Abu Da Zarah, false service, spiritual, physical, or otherwise. And of course, we remember that Moshe Tuvia opens the portal of Tov, right? That gate through which the infinite goodness of a world which is perfectly reflective of its maker can shine and gave us Hora'ah, the practical instruction on how to pursue that in the world. But you might protest, what's really the difference? Pharaoh, God, they're both still masters. Now that's a discussion for your Pesach Seder table, but I'll leave you with a thought. I bet everybody listening at one point had a job that they took purely for the paycheck. You know why? Because everybody's got to eat. There's a reason we call that type of work wage slavery, and not just because it's miserable. It's because when we find ourselves doing a job purely for the monetary outcome, we are completely alienated from the mission of the work. There's a master or a boss who has a vision we care not at all about. Just give me my paycheck. And putting in the work only serves the needs of my stomach. That is avodah zarah, a strange worship or a, wor- or a, a service which estranges me from myself in the simplest sense. All of my labor, all of my creative potential goes elsewhere, but I'll take the check, please. Now, I'll ask the opposite question. Have you ever had a job or even a task, maybe a class in university that made you jump out of bed and say, yes, I have so much work to do today? I hope so. And I'm willing to bet that if you have, you know that amazing feeling is rooted in your sense of alignment with the task at hand, in the feeling that through serving the mission of your master, you're drawing out the depths of your own self. It's the opposite of Abu Dazara, of a work which estranges you. And no matter how hard the work may be, it's true service, not a hollowing outer alienation of self that allows you just to labor to stay alive, but an expansion in service of something beyond limited self, a true Mesirut Nefesh, a going beyond growing beyond limited self for the sake of a higher good, one that makes you more than you ever could have been on your own. Remember, Eved Melech, Melech, the servant of the king, is themselves a king. So, before we wrap it up, what is actually the work to be done? How do we pursue Avodah as that first path of the 26 paths of heroism that leads out through the gate of Tov? Well, First of all, recall the essential definition of Oda that I can offer is a posture of service, a commitment to doing the work what it, that it takes to manifest the potential good in creation, no matter how it presents itself. And how do you know what that is? It begins with Hakarat Hatov, 
with the capacity to recognize the potential good in every aspect of the world around us, but not as a passive observer. Remember, as someone who's committed to hatava, to that process of refinement that can make you ready to take responsibility for the good you see, which is not yet. And if you feel a need for that good, then you can be moved to do the work to make it manifest. And Rashi taught us that the first human avodah was actually prayer. And if you want to go a little bit further with a practical path in prayer that comes out of that first appearance of avodah in our story, take a look at the complimentary or supplementary videos that come with this class. For now, just recall, our sages call prayer avodah shebelev because of the service of the heart, because a hero's heart must always be engaged and sensitive, ready to move them to action for the sake of the goodness underlying all creation. And of course, avodah is in service of something, and it can be a training of ourselves to become stewards of creation once again, ready to till and tend the divine garden, la'avda u'lishamra, which means that the first and constant field of work is the ground from which we are made cultivating our own heroic face, that side of self committed to the goodness of creation without and within, enhancing our agency, deepening our responsibility in commitment of actualizing all of our potential. Here too, I encourage you to take a look at the companion videos. You'll find there a guide to the three steps that I believe can set you on the path toward mastery of almost anything in life. For now, just take the essential lesson that life is work. And Evid gets no time off. The hero's question, the one that transforms that truth from brutal slavery to ennobling service, is what is the potential good in this moment? What's my avoda? Because the heroic path of avoda means you're always in service. And therefore, the time to do the work is now. The question is, what is the work to be done? And then, since everybody's got to serve somebody, the final question is, whom do you serve? Now, this is a heavy question and one which really requires not just a one-time response, I'm with that guy, but rather a stance taken anew in every moment. And that's why once you head through that gate of tov or the gate of good and you begin the quest in service of the goodness of creation, willing to do the work, the avodah, to make it manifest, then the next crucial question is how do you take a stance and decide whom do I serve? Which is why the next of the 26 paths that we'll, dis- we'll explore is Ivriut. Right? It's going to teach us the heroism of Abraham Ha'ivri, Abraham the Hebrew. Right? The Hebrew who changed the whole world simply through his choice of whom he served. Whose work was Abraham doing in the world? Well, you'll have to go on to the next path of heroism to Ibriut if you want to know.